Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. This podcast is for mature audiences. It contains graphic violence and adult themes. Listener discretion is advised. Realm presents Blood and Gold. Starring Richard Cabral, Episode 5. 1851, Hangtown, California. Anti-Mexican sentiment rages in the West, while across the United States, abolitionist movements begin to gain momentum. Serialization of Uncle Tom's Cabin begins in anti-slavery periodical, The National Era. Hangtown, near the South Fork of the American River, had 11 saloons. I hadn't thought to ask Bohannon the name of the one Sam McIntosh worked at, which made hunting McIntosh a challenge, as did the size of the town. Its main street was nearly a mile long, flanked on both sides by a wooden or brick buildings containing stores, brothels, churches, hotels, Barbers, a laundry, a doctor, gambling halls, both small and palatial. A sheriff's office, an essay office, a bank, and as I mentioned, 11 drinking houses. The street itself was dirt and torn up in spots because rumor had it, gold had been found right there in the streets. So folks still occasionally dug out patches looking for more. I wasted no time because I didn't want Macintosh to leave town or to hear about Bohannon's death before I got there. Once I arrived, I stopped into each saloon, bought a drink, and watched. Once I viewed every employee, I moved on to the next one. After the third saloon, I started ordering drinks, but not finishing them. Fearful that 11 in a short span of time would render me unable to do anything useful, even if I did find Macintosh. But after 11 saloons, and at the least a portion of 11 drinks, I still hadn't seen the man. I would have to return after dark when new workers might be on duty. I had been seen all over town though, and with my long hair and wild black beard, I was someone who could pass unnoticed in a place like this. If I made the rounds again, people would talk.
striped pole jutting out from the barbershop wall gave me the answer. Stepping inside, I found two barbers chattering away as they work on customers sitting in high chairs with footstools and nine more men waiting their turns. I walked out again just as quickly. Sitting in there would expose me to just as many of the town folks as sitting in saloons and perhaps require me to engage in conversation as well. I remembered seeing a second barber shop on the far end of the street. Inside, a single barber sat holding a newspaper in front of his face. I cleared my throat. <clears throat> when the man lowered the paper, I saw that he was a Mexican. You need a haircut and a shave. A bath too if you have one. But why are so many people waiting in line at the other place when there's no line here? Those fellows are good barbers and you're not. Soy muy malo. And I'm Mexican, so most whites stay away. Do you talk while you're working? Not if I can help it. A shave and a haircut then. I do have a tub. In back, I'll get my girl to fill it. Bien. I've met horses whose back can smell better than I do. The barber got out of the chair, folded and set his paper on the counter and seated me in front of the mirror. I studied myself. I hadn't looked in a real mirror since Rosita's death, only in streams and still ponds. With my face almost completely hidden under a bushy beard and long hair flying everywhere, I reminded myself of Harry Love. I wondered how Harry was doing, back in Santa Barba. As promised, the barber worked silently, sometimes grunting as he scraped my cheeks, chin, and neck. I told him to leave a mustache. He completed the shave by dabbing the many cuts he made with a stiptick pencil, then slapped bay rum lotion across both of my cheeks. Then he started in on my hair chopping it away with scissors. Again, I looked at my reflection. I seemed to have aged over the last several weeks. My face hardened. I had lost some weight and the flesh was tighter over my cheekbones. I fingered the ragged pink scar on my forehead. I didn't do that one, the barber said. I know. It was the work of a man who lives here, in Hangtown. Is that why you've come? I've never seen you here before. What would you say if I told you that he'll be dead before I leave? I'd ask you if he's one of my customers. If he is, I'd ask you to let him live. He's a white man. You say you don't have a lot of white customers. That's true. Can I trust you not to say anything about the revenge killing of a man who's never entered my shop? Of course. His name's Sam McIntosh. He, he works at one of these saloons, I'm, I'm told. But I don't know which one. I don't know the name. He's a fat man. Brown hair and beard. Lips as red as if he had painted them. I don't spend a lot of time in their saloons. We have a small Mexican district off the main street. I do my drinking in the cantina there. But you tell me if you knew him. I have no reason not to. Besides, you said you're going to pay me handsomely for my services? I said no such thing. Funny, I could have sworn you did right before you told me you planned to kill somebody. I almost laughed. I reached in a pocket and handed the barber a small pouch of gold dust. 
there perhaps a hotel or, or boarding house in the Mexican district? The pouch vanished into one of his pockets. A room could be arranged, sir. I think what's in the pouch will cover it. I'm sure it will. While you're bathing, I'll make the arrangements. The hot bath felt luxurious, but I couldn't relax knowing I'd revealed my plan to a stranger. By the time the water turned cool, the barber was back with directions to his cousin's house, not far away. I stepped out of the shop feeling like a new man. I collected the horses and rode to the house I'd been told about. A good-sized adobe in a district where all the shops had Spanish names. Arturo Borjorquez met me at the door, shook my hand, and brought me inside to meet his wife, Annalisa, and three sons. Young boys whose names I forgot almost as soon as I heard them. When Arturo showed me the room in which I'd sleep, he lowered his voice. You are going to want to visit the Lucky Strike tonight. I am, most assuredly. Thank you. No, thank you, my friend. The gold you share with my cousin will ensure that we can both feed our families for a few more weeks. It's a hard life here for our kind. If ever I can do anything more for you, you have only to ask. I am Joaquin Morieta. I wasn't sure what had caused me to share my name while I carried out my mission of vengeance, but I trusted this man and spreading a little treasure into the right hands, I was finding could work wonders. The Lucky Strike was a masterpiece of utility over aesthetics. All of it, floor to ceiling and in between, including the tables and chairs, was made from knotty pine wood making it difficult to distinguish one object from the next. Soil doves had their cribs upstairs, with most of them either engaged in those cribs or down on the saloon floor. I ordered a whiskey and carried it to an empty table in a corner of the room. For more than an hour, I waited and watched. Finally, a door at the back opened and a liquor barrel walked in. Headless, legs beneath it, arms wrapped around its belly. Then it dug down beneath the bar, and Sam McIntosh stood up, red-faced and sweating. Afraid he might go back out the door and be gone for another hour, I rose and started toward him. I feigned drunkenness, weaving between tables and keeping my eyes downcast so McIntosh couldn't see my face. As I suspected, he headed for the back door so I took a path that would intercept him, slurring my words when I spoke. Good fella, a moment. He paused, just inside the door. I closed the distance between us, my hand going to my sash and whipping out the bowie knife at the same time. His mouth dropped open, his eyes showed recognition, then remorse. He started to speak. Marietta, I'm sorry. Still play acting in case anyone watched, I took a drunken stumble, 
catching myself with my left hand on Macintosh's right shoulder and shoving the man against the back wall. This is for Rosita. I slashed the knife across his bearded throat, cutting deeply. I made a graceful half-spin to avoid the first spray of blood, which spurted the length of a man and more, and I was out the back door before blood or body hit the floor. Oye, hermano, can I ask you something? For the last several days, most of my conversations had begun that way, and always in Spanish. I approached only Mexicanos, and because my skin was fair, I wanted to be recognized for what I was. I'm looking for a man, a white guy, skinny, with red hair. His jaw was broken about a month ago. The usual response was along the lines of, I haven't seen anybody like that. But that day was different. I'd been riding along a forest trail outside Cuyoma when I saw a pair of Mexican men field dressing a deer they'd taken. I stopped, engaged in some casual conversation, and asked my question. The men exchanged glances. One of them started laughing. <laughs> that guy who looks like a drowned rat. That's him. His name's Wetzel. He's in Cuyoma, the second one said. He's been gambling a lot and doing pretty well. I think he cheats, the other added. I can't tell how, but I'm almost certain of it. That sounds like the man I'm looking for. Where can I find him? Most nights he's at Myers, at the Faro tables. Myers is in Coyoma? Yes, Myers Dance Hall and Saloon. It's a huge stone building. You can't miss it. Thank you, my friends. Nice catch, by the way. You need some venison? I reached into a saddlebag and withdrew a small pouch of gold. No thank you, but here, for your trouble. If anybody asks you, you never told me anything. I dropped the pouch into the hand of the man with the cleaner hands of the two. He waited in his palm and grinned. We've never even seen you. With a nod and a wave, I rode away in the direction of Kuyuma. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. The men had not exaggerated. Myers was a cavernous space. The air inside was thick with bitter tobacco smoke 
and the odors of cheap liquor and cheaper perfume. And music. I had dressed all in black and pulled a black slouch hat low over my eyes. The corners of the hall were shadowed and I found a table there. From under the brim, I perused the place. Gamblers plied their trade at 12 or 15 of the tables and plenty of working girls circulated, playing their own. I sat for almost two hours, nursing a couple of drinks and turning down offers from the painted ladies before Wetzel finally strolled in. One look at him confirmed the hunter's story. He might not have been much of a prospector, but he was apparently a reasonably good gambler. He wore a red silk vest over a white shirt with black pants and low crown black hat. He walked with a confidence that I had never seen on the creek. The man found a seat at one of the faro tables. Play went fast and Wetzel's chips piled up. I hoped he didn't intend to play all night. Fortunately, he quit after less than an hour. Trailed by a working girl who caught his fancy, he cashed in his chips and let her take his hand. She led him through a door, undoubtedly the passageway to where her crib was. I followed. Wending my way through the hall took longer than I wanted, so when I reached the doorway, Wetzel and the woman were already out of sight. I heard a creaking noise from above, so I took a narrow flight of wooden stairs. They led me to a dimly lit hallway. Doors lined the corridor, but only one was open. I caught a brief glimpse of a black pant leg and a flash of red vest disappearing through it. And then that door too was closed. From behind the other doors, I heard the squeaks of bed springs, muffled grunts and moans, and forced feminine laughter. Putting my ear to the door through which Wetzel had passed, I could make out the rhythms of quiet conversation or perhaps negotiation. Enough waiting. I had wanted to kill Wetzel from the moment I'd seen him, but he had been the center of too much attention. Now, I would get it done. I drew my knife and tried the door handle. It was unlocked. I slipped inside and eased it shut behind me. The room was small, containing only a bed, a chair, and a little table with a pitcher of water and Wetzel's loot on it. A window gazed blankly onto the dark night outside. The woman lay on the bed, already naked, holding one arm out to Wetzel to summon him. His vest and shirt were on the chair. He had one boot and one pants leg off and was standing on one foot, trying to work off the other boot. At my entrance, he tried to turn, clumsy and off balance and his mouth dropped open. He managed to get out one word, Marietta, before I slammed into him, shoulder first. Wetzel went down in a heap, tangled in his own pants. I reached down, grabbed his bearded chin, and hauled him to his feet. Tears sprang to his eyes as I wrenched his jaw. I jabbed the point of my bowie knife against his chest. Hey, hey, now look. I know why you're mad, Marietta. I would be too. But we can settle this like white men. I'm not a white man. Don't mean we can't be civilized here. Look, I got money. Lots of it. I'm aware. So how much you want? All of it? Just let me go. 
and it's yours. That got a reaction from the prostitute. You promised some of that to me. Quiet. I snapped, then turned back to Wetzel. You can't bargain with that. I can take your money just as easily once you're dead. And you clearly deserve to die. Look, I made a mistake, right? We all did. We got carried away. I regretted it the moment it happened, and I haven't stopped since. Yes. You look like you're racked with guilt. Dressing sharp, playing faro, buying whores. I backhanded him across the face with my left hand, keeping the knife pressed against him with the other. So spare me your phony sorrow. What do you want from me then? You ain't killed me yet. So you gotta want something. Tell me where the others are, and I'll let you go. Is that all? I don't know everybody, but, but Sam's in. Macintosh is dead. Don't you read the newspapers? Fur can't read. The prostitute said. He can barely count to 20. I can't so read. I just, I, I don't choose to. Chambers and Beeman, where are they? You'll let me go if I tell you. That's the deal. Wetzel licked his lips, tasting blood from my slap. I don't know about Beeman, but I heard Chambers over in Auburn, working a claim there. You sure? Last I heard, I got no reason to lie. How long ago? A week, maybe. A little longer, I, I don't know. Somebody said he seen Ben there. I studied him for a moment. He seemed to be telling the truth, or he thought he was. He was looking me right in the eye, not glancing away. Chambers had been the most ambitious of the lot, and I had heard that there was still gold to be found around Auburn. You'll let me go now, right? I said I would. I tucked my knife into my sash, grabbed Wetzel by the jaw and the waist of his half-off pants, and yanked him off his feet. I swung the little man once, twice. On the third swing, I let him go. With a scream, he crashed through the window, head first, and kept going. His cry ended abruptly when he hit the ground below with a loud thump. I knocked out some of the broken glass and looked down. Wetzel's neck was twisted at an unpleasant angle. If he hadn't died immediately, he would soon. I turned back to the little tables and scooped up the money. I tossed a fistful of coins at the woman. Here, that's more than he'd have given you. And you don't need to deal with the unpleasantness of him rutting you. I started toward the door, tucking the rest of Wetzel's money into my pocket as I went. But before I reached it, I heard a commotion in the hallway. So I went for the window instead, crawled through and pulled myself onto the roof. People below were rushing toward the body and pointing up at the broken window but not looking farther up into the darkness above. From there, I could hear the crowd from the corridor bursting into the crib and the prostitute telling them that some greaser named Mary something threw Wetzel out of the window, then took all the money. At the term greaser, never mind the lie about the money, I was sorry I'd given her any of it. I dropped down from the roof at the far end of the building, landing on a grassy slope behind it.
I couldn't get to Blanco tied up in front of the saloon, so I ran to the Mexican end of Coyoma, only a few minutes away. I picked a random adobe and knocked on the door. When a man answered, I explained that I was being sought by a mob because I was taking revenge on the white man who'd raped and murdered my wife. When I offered money, he refused, but I pressed it into his hands. For your family, take it. The man it belonged to is dead. Auburn wasn't far away, just over some tree-topped hills and across the North Fork of the American River. I took a room in a hotel and slept away most of the day. That night, I made the rounds of the taverns and saloons, looking for chambers. I didn't see them anywhere, so the next day I woke up early, mounted my horse, and rode around the area. Wetzel had said Chambers was working a claim, so he was probably staying away from the town proper, living in a tent or a cabin somewhere on the outskirts. That day, I saw plenty of miners, some seemingly coming up with color, but no chambers. I watched men digging trenches in the earth, backs bent to their labors. I saw them wading knee or hip deep in frigid water. I saw them shovel heavy mounds of wet earth into sluices. I rode past some sitting in whatever shape they could find, sweat streaming down their exhausted bodies. I thought of the money in my saddlebags and how easy it had been to come by. Kill a man with money and take it. Even after sharing some with the painted lady and more with the family that had sheltered me, I had plenty left. I had been one of those hard-working men not so long ago. I thought that was the best life I had to offer. You work hard, you take what you can get, and you go home to your wife. If I still had a wife, I might still believe that. But the more I watch those men killing themselves for a handful of gold, if that, the less I thought it was the best way to live. There were other ways, after all, that didn't break a man's spirit as well as his back. Ways that would also teach our American oppressor a lesson. I didn't find Chambers that day. I went to dinner at a restaurant near the hotel. And while I waited for my meal, I picked up a copy of El Dorado Republican that someone had left on a nearby table. A headline on the front page blared, Mexican murderer on the loose, in huge, bold letters. Beneath that, somebody named Thomas Springer had written, two citizens have been brutally slaughtered in a week's time, and witnesses' statements suggest that both may have been murdered by the same Mexican killer. I witnessed firsthand the gruesome scene in Hangtown, where Sam McIntosh's throat was slashed inside the very saloon that employed him, in full view of dozens of patrons. The murderer there was described as a tall Mexican man of powerful build, with long dark hair and a mustache. Some reported a vivid scar on his forehead. Just days later, gambler, Fernandez Wetzel was thrown through a second-story window in Coyuma by a fiend whose description matches the first. 
in a way. It was flattering being written about such vivid terms. I had wanted Chambers and B-Man to fear my coming. And now, they surely would. It wasn't I who should tremble, but they who knew their own role in making me what I had become. I sliced into my steak with a smile on my face. The next morning, I set off again, riding in a different direction from the day before. This time, my hunt didn't take long at all. As I rode along a trail that paralleled the North Fork, I heard a familiar voice. Keep it coming, you lazy bastards. This bitch don't feed herself. I stopped my horse, dismounted, and climbed a low rise. At the top, I crouched close to the ground so I wasn't illuminated by the morning sun. Chambers stood beside a long tom. It hadn't taken him long to put together another team, and the long tom looked much like the one he'd abandoned at the original claim. I considered my options. Men were working all up and down the river, so if I attacked Chambers now, I'd have my hands full getting away. This wasn't like killing someone inside a building from which I could slip away. I could find myself facing dozens of men armed with knives, guns, picks, and shovels in broad daylight. I could try shooting from here. I had high ground on the far side of the river. Some men were working on this side, but not as many, so I'd have a better chance at escape. I thought I'd be able to hit chambers from here with the musket but I wanted Chambers to know who had killed them and why. If I killed them from a distance, I would lose that. Better to let Chambers live out his last day, then finish him. I backed down from the hilltop and found a spot from which I could watch him go about his business for the last time. Finally, as the sun sank behind the western hills, Chambers and the others quit for the day. As they prepared to leave their claim, I mounted my horse and rode closer. I topped a low rise overlooking a small cluster of cabins interspersed with tents, too small and disorganized to be called a town. I spotted Chambers following a curving path among the cabins and disappearing into one near the edge of the array halfway up a little hill. The place was barely more than a shack. Dark came on fast. The little congregation of homes livened up with men gathering around cook fires, making dinner, and drinking. But although I watched closely, I never saw Chambers emerge from his cabin. Once the night quieted again, I mounted Blanco and headed into the makeshift village. Here and there, men too drunk to make it back inside snored, curled on the ground. But otherwise, the place was silent with the aroma of dying embers tinging the air. 
I tethered my mount out of sight of Chambers' cabin and went the rest of the way on foot. It was also quiet and dark, as if any occupants were asleep. Silently, with my coat dragoon in my right hand and my bowie knife in my sash, I approached the door. Three wooden steps led to the entrance. They looked flimsy and would probably creak under my boots. I stepped back and made a quick circuit of the building. On the west side, firewood was stacked in preparation for winter. There were windows on the front and east sides, which I ducked under as I passed. But the other walls were blank. The door appeared to be the only way in. Returning to it, I raised one booted foot and tested the first stair. Then I was brought up short by a stink that reminded me of a rotting horse. I recognized the foul odor immediately. Beeman. Chambers wasn't alone in there. I hadn't seen Beeman, though I'd been watching Chambers for most of the day. Chances were he was not part of Chambers' team at all, which left only one likely reason for his presence. The two men had heard about the deaths of their three former companions and huddled together for safety, which called for reconsideration of my plan. I'd intended to barge through the door, find Chambers in a state of half-wakefulness at best, and demand Beeman's location before killing him. But if they were both in there, threatening would be meaningless. I'd have to be ready to kill immediately, and I would be facing two men, not one. If Chambers had been waiting for a killer, he would make sure that one of the men was awake at all times standing guard. Of course, it was also possible that both men would be awake, even that, despite my precautions, Chambers had spotted me during the day, or been told by my contacts in Auburn that a man of my description had been there. Instead of climbing the stairs, I backed away, once more ducking beneath the front window. I went silently to the west side, lifting a good-sized split log and a smaller one from the firewood stack and returned to the doorway. Tucking the pistol into my sash, I took the smaller log in my left hand and the larger in my right. Then, as simultaneously as I could manage, I hurled the small log through the front window. The moment it left my hand, I spun around, raised a booted foot, and kicked open the front door, throwing the larger log through as it swung wide. Both logs landed inside with a clatter that was nearly drowned out by the booms of two almost instantaneous shotgun blasts. One aimed through the door, and the other blowing out most of what glass remained in the window. With those blasts roaring in my ears, I dove in through the open door, landing low and rolling once before, springing to my feet while away from the door. In the moonlight streaming through the shattered window, I saw Chambers sitting at a wooden table, trying to insert a fresh shell from an array lined up before him. 
I raised the coat and fired twice. The first shot struck Chambers in the chest, and the second one pierced his forehead just above his left eye. The man's chair tilted backward, and he slid off. While he was doing that, I heard rustling from behind me. I guess Beeman had also been trying to reload, but instead of continuing, he gripped the shotgun by the barrel and swung it like a club. Sensing what was coming, I tried to dodge. The gun's wooden stock caught me on my right upper arm, and the shock of it caused me to drop the coat. Before Beeman could swing again, I lunged for him. I could barely see the man, just a dark shape against a black background but I felt him fall beneath my charge and slam into a wall nearest the doorway. Before he could resist, I caught his throat in my left hand and closed the fingers of my right around the Bowie grip. Rosita stabbed you. I hope it hasn't stopped hurting. Beeman tried to speak, but my grip on his throat was too tight. I didn't much care what he had to say anyway. With my left forearm, I pressed against his chest and shoulder until I found the approximate spot where Rosita had buried the knife. The man's whimper told me I succeeded. There it is. That spot, right? He nodded his head to the extent he was able. That's what I thought. I shifted my arm, raised the bowie knife, and drove it into the same spot. Beeman let out a squeal and writhed it under my grip, but I pressed him harder to the wall and drew out the knife. Blood came with it, spurting from the wound onto the floor. I considered briefly letting him live as a warning to anyone who dared threaten me or my loved ones. It took only seconds to shake that notion. The only people I wanted to know that I had killed Chambers and the others were already dead. There was no one left to warn. Instead, I drew the knife across Beeman's throat and found myself baptized in blood. Reborn. You're listening to Blood and Gold, starring Richard Cabral. Blood and Gold is a Realm production in association with Stryker Entertainment. Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Realm's new podcast, Overleaper, stars BAFTA and Emmy-nominated actress Thora Birch as both American soldier Audrey Beach and her doppelganger called the Overleaper. All of Audrey Beach's training could never have prepared her for her latest top secret mission, where her own doppelganger from another universe has locked her up and left her to die. To make things worse, the Overleaper isn't just here to take her place, but is on a mission to assassinate the President of the United States. Overleaper is a thrilling espionage filled with twists and turns, as Audrey must race against time and herself to defend the nation and protect her good name. Be sure to listen to Overleaper wherever you get your podcasts or visit realm.fm for more information.
Blood and Gold stars Richard Cabral, based on the novel Blood and Gold, The Legend of Joaquin Murrieta by Jeffrey J. Marriott and Peter Murrieta. Produced by Marco Palmieri, Fred Greenhalge, Kaylin West, and Haley Wagreich. Adapted for audio by Greg Cox. Directed by Elizabeth Nolden and Fred Greenhalge. Executive produced by Molly Barton, Marcy Wiseman, Russell Binder, Peter Murrieta, Julian Yap, and Richard Cabral. Historical notes read by Elena Ray. Spanish dialogue translated by Alana Grafham. Regional dialect coaching by Luis Armando Mercado Campos. Sound design by Eric Mooney. Mixing, mastering, and additional sound design by Rory O'Shea. Audio editing by Corey Barton. Original score by Juan Carlos Enriquez. Music supervision by Marcus Begala. Production manager, Alexis Latshaw. Production coordinator, Angela Yee. Casting by Sunday Bowling and Meg Mormon. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Find more shows like Blood and Gold by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.